Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. In January 1954, James Miller, his wife, and three daughters landed in Little Rock, Arkansas. He'd been a lawyer and bored with his career, joined the FBI. They were there long enough just to have their fourth daughter. This was his first post. He was then transferred to Washington, D.C. and El Paso, Texas, and in 1969 wound up in Tucson, Arizona, where he and his wife settled down permanently so their daughters could attend university. During his career, he dealt with espionage, bank robberies, and locating fugitives. Being an FBI agent, James knew all too well the evil that existed in the world, and he trained his four daughters, Susan, Lisa, Jill, and Jamie, how to defend themselves. Lisa was fun-loving and energetic, and natural beauty with blonde hair and striking blue eyes, and was slim for her 5'9 frame. She graduated high school and went to Northern Arizona University. She then met Gary, who was handsome and in the military. They got married in 1971 and had a daughter, Krista. The two followed Gary when he was stationed in Japan. He was about to be discharged, but first was going to Taiwan for a short assignment. Lisa was now pregnant with their second child, so they made plans for her to return to the U.S. and stay with her parents in Tucson and have the baby there. In spring, Lisa gave birth to their son, Brady. Gary had just been discharged from the Air Force at Travis Air Force Base in California and was looking forward to returning home to his wife and daughter and meeting his son for the very first time and Lisa couldn't wait to see him. Tuesday, May 29th, Gary was flying home, and when his plane stopped over in San Francisco, he called Lisa to tell her what time he'd be arriving in Tucson. Lisa dressed in a white pair of jeans, a blue sleeveless blouse with white trim, and a pair of sandals to go pick up her husband. James offered to drive his daughter to the airport, but she wanted to greet her husband all on her own. Lisa's family were all waiting at her parents' house to celebrate Gary's homecoming. She borrowed her dad's ANC javelin and her mother's set of keys with the name tag Beth hanging from the ring. Around 9.20 p.m., she drove off in the dark night to the Tucson International Airport, a short 20-minute drive. Lisa pulled into the airport parking lot, rolled down her window to grab a parking ticket from the machine. She parked the car. What happened next is what detectives surmise occurred, but after 38 years, it's still only speculation. Lisa turned off the car, had the keys in her hand, and was rolling up the driver's window when William Zamastil approached the car. He pulled out a gun and ordered Lisa out of the car. She was terrified. The parking lot was dark, the only illumination a lonely light in the center casting an eerie glow. She looked around and there was no one except for him. With a gun in her back, he forced her into his car and sped out. It had taken less than a minute to abduct Lisa. 
As she sat in the passenger seat terrified, he drove 70 miles to the Fort Huachuca military base. In order to get inside, you needed identification. However, cars with the Fort Huachuca sticker were often waved in by the guards. It's unknown exactly how he got in, but he drove to a secluded spot. There, he forced Lisa to undress and he sexually assaulted her. Then he pointed his 22 caliber gun at her and pulled the trigger twice. He buried her body in a shallow grave covered with only a few inches of dirt. No one saw a thing. No one heard the gunshots. Gary arrived at the airport around 10.15 p.m. He looked for Lisa, but didn't see her. He looked around inside the airport, and when he couldn't find her, he called her father. James immediately headed to the airport. They found her car in the parking lot. Lisa's purse was still on the back seat, where she always put it when she drove. Her father knew she would have taken it with her into the terminal. The keys were gone and the car unlocked. James immediately reported her missing and regretted that he had not drove with her. Lisa was 22. By daylight, the Tucson Citizen reported the six agents from the Pima County Sheriff's Office, about a dozen FBI agents and a police helicopter, were searching for Lisa around the airport. Her car had been washed a couple days earlier, and when it was processed for fingerprints, 29 were found. 27 were ruled out as belonging to family and friends, but two prints were unidentified, a partial palm print and a print from the side of a finger. Authorities believed Lisa had been kidnapped. The next day, the search was expanded. The Arizona Daily Star reported that more than 100 people searched a patch of desert near the city's southern fringe looking for clues. In addition to a helicopter, FBI agents, sheriff's deputies, city police detectives, and volunteers from the Air Force Base searched on foot. Police received an anonymous tip from a caller that said her body would be found near the airport and agents were pouring over passenger lists from the flights in and out of Tucson that night. The parking lot where Lisa had parked was dimly lit, and an FBI official said it was one of the darker areas. Airport security guards patrolled the lot, but no one reported seeing anything. Before Lisa's abduction, there had been a number of reports from women who'd been accosted in the parking lot, including a woman who'd managed to fend off her would-be attackers and made it safely to her car and locked the doors. Four days after Lisa disappeared, the FBI called off its search efforts around the airport. They had exhausted all efforts and no clues had been found. Six days and she was still missing. FBI agents took the search to the desert area south of Tucson. A witness came forward to say that on the night Lisa went missing, she heard a scream and saw a woman jump from a passing car on the Nogales Highway and that one of the two men in the car began beating the woman on the back as she was screaming for help. He shoved her back into the car and sped away. She thought the woman matched Lisa's description, and that the clothes she was wearing were similar and recalled that the car was a gray sedan. It had now been ten days, and the FBI had checked the hospitals and checked in with criminals arrested for sex crimes. They encouraged women who may have been accosted to report it, and they had developed three theories as to what may have happened to Lisa. One was that she ran away. However, all indications were that she was happily married and didn't have any reason to leave. Two was that she was kidnapped for ransom. 
This was a strong possibility. However, they hadn't received a ransom demand. And three, she was abducted and raped and perhaps killed. This seemed like the most likely possibility, and this would make the chance of finding her slim. Three weeks after his daughter went missing, James personally offered a $5,000 reward for a crucial clue that would lead to Lisa. Four weeks after her disappearance, a Tucson police officer told the Arizona Republic that they didn't have one solid clue to go on and that it was though she just went into thin air. James believed that his daughter may have unwittingly ran into a transaction by drug dealers who sometimes used the airport parking lot and believed she was abducted by at least two men. He said that Lisa is 5 feet 9 and weighs 115 pounds and had been taught to take care of herself. And that may be one reason she has not emerged before now, is that her abductors learned he was an FBI agent and didn't know what to do with her. He also stated that none of his daughter's clothing were missing from their home and that she had left $612 in cash in a dresser drawer. Police then revealed a new clue. They traced the number of parking tickets that had been issued that night and discovered a ticket was issued immediately after Lisa's and that the vehicle only stayed six minutes. That wouldn't be enough time to park and pick up a passenger. They'd also been able to determine that she had not entered the airport terminal building that night and it was unlikely her abductor had parked on the roadside outside the airport as parking wasn't allowed and it was patrolled often. On July 6th, a man phoned James at the Tucson FBI office saying he had information about where Lisa was. But he became nervous, so Lisa's father convinced him to phone him at home. The caller hung up, and James rushed home after work, but just missed the call. He never called again. The call was traced to a phone booth in a depressed area of Detroit, but the caller's identity remained a mystery. It had been 67 agonizingly long days since Lisa had been kidnapped, and FBI agents were still working on her case. The $5,000 reward her father had offered hadn't produced any tangible leads. 104 days into their investigation, the FBI search spread to Mexico with the possibility she'd been taken across the border. 110 days after Lisa was abducted, her remains were found in a shallow grave Three military members out on a hike searching for rocks and Indian artifacts came across a jawbone with fillings in the teeth and realized this was not an artifact and immediately notified Army Intelligence who contacted the FBI. The rains had washed away the thin layer of dirt covering her naked body and coyotes had scattered her bones. Her clothes and sandals were gone. In the grave, they found one of her gold earrings her engagement and wedding rings, and two 22 caliber bullets. Lisa's body was decomposed and a positive ID was confirmed using dental records. There were no bullet wounds in her skull and authorities ruled out robbery and were convinced she was the victim of a sex crime. An autopsy was performed by a military pathologist from the army base, but due to the severe decomposition, he could not determine her cause of death. Investigators revealed that they believed she had been killed soon after she had been abducted and not held for a period of time. The FBI took over Lisa's case as it involved kidnapping, but also because her body was found on federal property. 
Eventually, Lisa's husband went to his new job in Portland, and Lisa's father withdrew from his daughter's case, stating that he was too emotionally caught up in it. Her mother told the Tucson Daily Citizen that they were not surprised at the outcome, but they had clung to hope, stating that another case's girls had disappeared and been found. Agents believed that Lisa had been brought to a gravesite by car, and that only someone with army identification would have been permitted to drive through one of the base's three guarded gates. The large area by day was used by people picnicking and hiking, and it also housed a rifle range which complicated matters with shell cartridges strewn about for the last 50 years. They checked the base's laundry to see if any bloody clothes had been sent in and began interviewing soldiers on the base. On Thursday, September 19th, it had been 113 days and Lisa was laid to rest in peace at Hillside Cemetery in Sierra Vista, Arizona. Her death left a gaping hole on the Miller family and in the heart of her husband Gary and her two-year-old daughter and five-month-old son. The soldiers who found her body claimed the $5,000 reward posted by her grieving father. Meanwhile, the FBI continued the hunt for Lisa's killer. By December, they had conducted more than 1,000 interviews. In addition to people at the base, they also talked to potential suspects who had kidnapping or rape convictions. A year after her death, the number of FBI interviews had grown to 2,000, and they'd come to the conclusion that she had not been targeted by someone trying to get even with her father. 21 months after Lisa had been murdered, her husband Gary sued the Tucson International Airport, Transworld Airlines that he'd flown on, and Don's Auto Park, who managed the parking lot. He was seeking $1 million for their negligence in her death, Two years later, a superior court judge ruled against the widow. He appealed the ruling, and a year later, the Arizona Court of Appeals dismissed his lawsuit. After Lisa's death, Tucson held too many unpleasant memories for her parents, and they left Arizona when James was transferred to Tampa, Florida. His youngest daughter got married, and her and her husband followed James into the FBI. A little over four years after her death, the FBI returning to computers in search for her killer. The Tucson Citizen reported that they were going to take 8,000 names contained in a five-foot-high stack of investigative data to see if the electronic brains could make a new connection. And added to that would be the names of 15,000 military personnel dependents and civilians who were at Fort Huachuca at the time. The soldier's fingerprints record had been sent to Washington and would be compared against the two partial prints found on Lisa's car that night. Psychiatrists in Washington had come up with a psychological profile of the killer. He was a lone wolf, had problems with the mother, and sexual difficulties with women. FBI agent Lawrence Bagley, who'd been in charge of the case since the beginning, told the newspaper about several of the tips they'd received over the years. One tip received soon after her disappearance was a drunk who called the office late one night to say she was being held in cabin number seven on Mount Lemon. Agents hung up the phone and raced up the mountain, only to find several cabins labeled number seven. They chose the most likely cabin and broke the door down. She wasn't there. Tips on potential suspects led agents to New Zealand, a mountain top in the Philippines, and an ice flow in the Antarctic. He also revealed that they drained a lake and listened to several psychics, studied infrared photographs of Fort Huachuca taken from Army spy planes at night, and that they'd even looked for a connection to the Hillside Strangler and Ted Bundy. 
1979, six years after her murder, the Herald Palladium reported that Agent Lawrence Bagley said the only unresolved lead in the case is that phone call James had received from a phone booth in Detroit. The call had been recorded and was given to the Syracuse University, who would be applying a new technique in linguistics. The call was released to TV and radio stations in hopes that someone in their audience might recognize the voice. FBI received about 10 calls, but none of them led to the killer. That year, the witness who'd reported seeing a woman dragged into a car with two men went under hypnosis to see if she could recall anything further. She remembered the woman crying out, Mother, help me, and a partial license plate, but it didn't lead to finding the car. Eight years later, in 1981, a man suffering mental health issues confessed to her murder, saying he was having flashbacks, but when he couldn't provide any new details other than what had already been in the news, authorities felt it was unlikely that he was Lisa's killer. In 1983, FBI identified a potential suspect by the name of Gregory Barker, who had been stationed at Fort Huachuca in 1973. A month after Lisa's body was found, he had been discharged. Gregory fit the FBI psychological profile, but it wasn't until 1991, when he was featured on TV's Unsolved Mysteries, that a tip came in and agents were finally able to question him. He was arrested on previous robbery charges and a suspect in a similar rape and murder, which he was eventually convicted of and sentenced to 50 years. Gregory denied killing Lisa, and agents had no physical evidence to tie him to her murder. Three years later, 1996, Lisa's father was still hoping to find her killer. He offered a $10,000 reward in a classified ad he posted in two Tucson newspapers for information leading to the arrest and conviction of person or persons responsible for her abduction. Lisa's husband became a state trooper in Portland, Oregon, and eventually remarried. Her parents later divorced, and James said that her murder played a part in that. He passed away in 2007 and is buried at the Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery in San Antonio, Texas. Two years after James' death, officials finally made an arrest in Lisa's murder. William Samistil was in prison in Wisconsin and had bragged about her murder to police informants. He'd already been convicted of the kidnapping, rape, and murder of another woman in Wisconsin in 1978 and was also convicted of killing two teenagers, a brother and sister, earlier that same year in California. On August 29, 2009, he was charged with Lisa's murder and pled not guilty. Lisa's family attended the trial. TV's Investigation Discovery episode, one of their own, details how William was finally connected to Lisa. Two informants who did not know each other and who did not receive anything for testifying, both told the same story of him showing them a photo of Lisa. Their descriptions were highly consistent with the photo of her that had been used on a poster. In 2011, William Samistil was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. It had been 38 years since Lisa's murder, a very long road to justice. Her mother, Beth, passed away in 2015 and is buried beside her daughter. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Catherine Sieber, Separated by Generations, Brought Together 
by greed. It was cold, very cold, just beginning to snow. King Jeff threw Great Grandma in the trunk and drove off. But they took more than her rings and money. They took her life. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>